Basically, that's our driving force, our life force for um, our existence, both culturally and spiritually. What would happen if people stopped singing and dancing? It would mean that we wouldn't have any uh, basis to live. Nothing like this would be relevant, and that's why uh, we would be nothing. Hello, I'm Gretchen Miller, and welcome to Encounter on ABC Radio National. In the program today, we're travelling from Darwin to northeast Arnhem Land to attend the 10th Gama Festival of Traditional Culture, held in Yolnu country on the Gove Peninsula. We'll be talking to people there about Aboriginal ceremonial practices and their interconnectedness with spiritual, social and individual health and well-being. The way I see it, ceremony is a medicine to the soul, the inner being of a young person. And in a time of person going through very sick, for instance, that person will need that particular instance of comfort, comfort in times of need. It ties in with a bigger caring for country practice. Where does ceremony sit in that larger practice of caring for country? It's all one thing. The land is sung in the song lines. And the song lines is like a big picture where you see yourself walking on the land when it's being sung mm. by the men and the dancers. The actions of everything like the birds and the animals is danced. The song is telling a story of where it is and how you travel to the land through the sky or the sea or the land. The notion that something as esoteric and spiritual as ceremony can have tangible health benefits has yet to be embraced by the political mainstream. It's just over a year since the former Howard government launched the Northern Territory intervention, focusing on the safety and well-being of Aboriginal children. While there's still passionate debate over the appropriateness of the intervention, the spotlight has been on the practicalities of health checks, nutrition and reducing access to alcohol. But as we just heard from Yolnu traditional owners Mandawoy Yinapingu, Japari Munangirich and Dangal Gurawiwi, Aboriginal people see cultural practices as central to well-being. Ceremony is a sacred crucible of the broader practice of caring for country. It's like a vaccination against illnesses of the spirit and of the body. It protects, in both esoteric and pragmatic ways, Aboriginal existence on the earth. In this program, we'll unfold the reasons why this is so. We'll discuss some medical evidence and see how cultural practice may have a much larger role to play in addressing the chronic physical and social ill health plaguing many Aboriginal communities. Music is one of the few 
things in the remote Aboriginal communities in Northern Australia that can stop just about every form of antisocial behaviour. Mark Gross, General Manager of Skinny Fish Music in Darwin. The things that have power in communities is uh, football, music and cultural practice. Those things can focus those whole communities on positive activity. And it seems that governments and all sorts of organisations that work with Aboriginal communities are searching for exactly that key, but no one uses those keys. For whatever reason, they see music as a hobby or football as just something interesting to do on the weekend. And they continue to struggle to find a key to actually send a message to people or get through to people or, or empower people. And for us, it's really logical. It's right there in front of us all. Every group, every year, young people bring their bungal and manikai. Each and one clan from east to west. Different dialects, different bit, different stepping, but talking about one, a life, a creation. Yo, Barney. For several hours each afternoon, Witiana Marika interprets the stories being sung and danced by different clans gathered around the Bungal ground at the Gama site at Gulkala. Ceremony can happen anywhere, but always refers intimately to the very specific country or homeland of the performers. Homelands are usually accessed through outstations, which are at some distance from towns. But what is a homeland? Dean Yibberbook, traditional owner of country around Gubbalwanamu on the central Arnhem Land Plateau, operates Wadakan Land Management. He also does health research with Charles Darwin University. It's a home. Uh, the land that's been inherited through our generations, grandfathers and grandfathers, and being passed on uh, from that generation up until now is, you know, the land in each clan group owns a particular estate. When we're being drawn to a major town, European-made settlement, we left the country uh, sitting there by itself waiting for people to return. And our people became a diasporas in that particular time. Some areas we're getting people to come back to homelands and try to participate for the time being until, you know, further down the track people will feel that, you know, they belong to that country. Yeah. Because then they know it's home for them. It's usually the towns acting as service providers to outstations that see the most social and health problems. Mortality and rates of disease are up to seven times higher for Aboriginal than non-Aboriginal Australians. Heart disease, diabetes, depression and alcoholism are found around centres where there's little work, no activities for teenagers and usually a pub or club open for long hours. Towns are sometimes on country, but the lifestyle can be sedentary, separate from the bush, and ceremonial practice and caring for country become sporadic. Just being on country and, you know, living the sort of lifestyle that people are 
going out hunting, going out foraging, having to work to, to just get the material wherewithal to sustain the ceremony is, is important. And it really gives people a purpose, you know, whereas sitting around in the community unemployed for year after year doesn't really give people any sense of purpose. So what often happens when you sort of see young men who are sort of fairly lethargic around town just come to life when they come out in the country and suddenly become very, very hardworking. Exactly what it is is difficult because there are so many different facets. But I would have said that the sort of things that, you know, you'd be looking at would be things like proximity to the ancestors, the fact that, you know, you're there in the place where your forebears were. So you have a sort of connection to tradition and you have a direct contact with those ancestors and those sources. You have a connection to places that are powerful. And when you've been to powerful places with Aboriginal people. There's no mistake about the way in which the country electrifies people. That's Alan Marrett, Professor of Ethnomusicology, School of Indigenous Knowledge Systems at Charles Darwin University. I asked him how ceremonial song demonstrates the depth of connection between country and people. And he told me of an area where the music is still being born out of country and given to songmen in dreams by the ancestors. Like the lyrica that comes from country around Wadair or Port Keats, southwest of Darwin. Most of the lyrica are given to songmen by a pair of mermaids, an old one with, with white hair and a young one with dark hair. And uh, they live in the Billabong around Wadipuli and Nama, which is where most of that family lives. And what's the general subject matter? It's to do with things that are around that area, you know, about the Billabong, about the mermaids themselves, about the water lilies, about the mosquitoes that live in the swamp, about the paper barks, about the birds. Well, of course, people are born out of country and in the literal sense that their essence, if you like, comes out of a particular ancestral place where power had been deposited at the beginning of time, in the creative period. And, you know, those places are frequently waterholes. People are born out of waterholes. And, you know, people can tell you where they came from and where they came from also determines what they are. You know, whether they're, whether they're a crocodile or whether they're a turtle or... then that's the fundamental aspect of, of being. So the songs help maintain that connection between people, the dead and the sentient landscape. Yeah, I mean, people are always born out of the country they're living in. Oh, hi, I'm Tom Kelmer, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner and National Race Discrimination Commissioner with the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an Indigenous person from the Northern Territory. Uh, from my father's side, he's Iwija and that's on country on Coburg Peninsula, which is just north of Kakadu National Park. And my mother is Kongarakan, and that's just southwest of Darwin. It borders on with the Larrakia, who are the traditional owners for Darwin. So our country goes from, from the Territory Wildlife Park at Berry Springs through Litchfield National Park, Bachelor to Adelaide River. What about for you in your childhood? Did you have much ceremony? We did. I'm very lucky that, that from my mother's side it was within 
um, you know, 100 kilometres of Darwin, the, probably the furthest point, or just over. Um, and so we were able to maintain a close relationship with family who, who are still living on the land. Uh, I must say that, that a lot of our the, our traditional lands had been taken up through pastoral or agricultural leases or other other arrangements. But no. we did have access, and, and we've got greater access now that you know we won a fair bit of land back through the Finnish River land claim. So I was very fortunate um, in being able to experience that. But unfortunately, that a lot of our ceremonies now are relating to um, you know the passing of somebody within the family, and that's not good. That's very sad. Are you one of the knowledge men? Are you a singing man or a dancing man? Uh, no, I, I do have, have knowledge, but uh, it's interesting because a lot of our older people in the early 1900s, you know, there was a, a big ceremony, and at that ceremony at Adelaide River, there was a poisoning, there was strychnine put into the flower, which then killed killed many of our elders, and that that lost a lot of our dance. And it was arsenic or strychnine, you know, it's more likely to be arsenic because it was the arsenic that was used to poison crocodiles and somehow that found its way into the into the flower. But um, that took a great toll of both men and women in those ceremonies. We went through a couple of generations where it was quite a hard time for all of us, you know, and then when just, you know, less than a decade ago, some of our older men and they were very old, they were in their 80s, and they were the, the senior custodians of the songs and, and dancers died. And what was even sadder when there was the next generation down who were also the carriers of, of the songs and language also passed. So, so you know, we, we lost almost two generations of people within a fairly close period of time. It was just, you know, the diseases of um, diabetes, that, that particular disease. We lost a couple through cardiovascular disease and, um, you know, things like um, smoking, like drinking, like um, poor diet um, are major contributors. And so we're going through a period now where, you know, we, we're doing a, a bit of a cultural survival and revival within our group we still know the stories that are there and we still practice them we still share them what we are lacking are the are the people who know the songs and uh, when you lose people quickly there's not that opportunity to transition Ceremony's centrality to Aboriginal life, then, goes well beyond entertainment, deep into the social and spiritual structures of society. Musicologist Alan Marrett has spent 30 years working closely with traditional owners from around the top end. Well, I think one of the things that you need to understand about ceremony is that, in a lot of ways, it's, well, it is the law, it is the library. It's the bank. <laughs> it's the place where really central things get transacted. So when I say it's the law, what I mean is it is about expressing and enacting the way that people should behave. When I say that it's the library, it's in an oral culture, it's the place where 
the key elements of wisdom and learning are brought out and passed on and people are reminded of them in a very physical sort of way. You know, they're not words on a page. You actually do it with your body and you do it with your voice. And that process really sustains knowledge and culture, you know, what, what the important things are. And these important things are to do with what we are, who we are, where we belong in the world. When you take those things away, you're taking things away that are very fundamental. And when I say it's the bank as well, I mean, ceremony also functions to allow people to do certain things. For example, it's very often the case that until young men have been through certain ceremonies, they're not allowed to marry. There's a real economy there that allows older people to control younger people and to sort of guide them through the economic and the social institutions of the society. If young men in particular are not put through ceremony, then they become unruly and antisocial. There's an element of discipline. It's a bit like if kids don't go to school, the way that we pass on knowledge, the way that we pass on values, then they, they become rather scattered and loose. They have no reference points. And I think that, you know, in, in some ways, that's part of what has happened with people coming lost. You know, it's like the, the ceremony is the crucible where so many things happen. As you lose those things, you lose things that are incredibly fundamental. But for a lot of people, singing and dancing are sort of entertainment. It's what you do on Friday night for fun, you know. It's not what you do to hold your, your life together. In Arnhem Land, there hasn't been a forced removal to the missions or surrounding stations, as happened widely across Australia. The Yolnu people at the Gama Festival of Traditional Culture this year spoke of the strength of the unbroken link between Yolnu clans, their country, and the ceremony they've always practised. Hello, my name is Tangal Guru Wiwi, and I'm from the Kalpo clan. I live at Nurenboi, which is a mining town in the Gulf Peninsula. Hi everyone, my name is Tapri Munabrich. I'm a Gumach person and I am also a role model for my community. I guess it's because we're not separated. No, because now, it's a big extended clan, family amongst every all clan the tribes. isn't separated. Yeah. For instance, just an example, I'm a Galpo, that's one of the clans, and my grandmother is Ritajingo, that's another clan from Yurkala. My great-grandmother is Talwango, and that's from... Southern part, Southern part of Laina. And see the connection of the land, and my mother is this place, the Gumai. So, so all the and clans the tribal are connections. connected. Yeah. Mm. Ceremony brings those connections yeah. out, as I understand mm -hmm. it. There's a responsibility your clan might That's perform right, for your clan. If yeah. I pass away, my grandmother takes, takes control of the ceremony. my body, my ceremony. Mm -hmm. Then there's my mother standing by, and there's my clan together. We've all got the responsibilities. Yeah. So that means that if you have responsibility for someone else who's 
family, then there's less likely in a practical sense to be conflict. You have to do it. You. That's your responsibility. You're listening to Encounter on ABC Radio National and we're discussing the link between traditional ceremony, caring for country and spiritual, social and individual health in Aboriginal communities. In the soft darkness before dawn one morning at the Gama Festival, a number of European women joined the Yolnu Women's Camp. We walked together silently through the stringy bark trees to sit on a point overlooking the coastal plains, stretching out to the Gulf of Carpentaria. They're seen to be peopled with the spirits of the ancestors. As we waited for the sun to rise over the sea, the women remembered their dead and keened. It was too sacred and secret to record, but Japari Munangerich and Dungal Gurawiwi later told me what it was about. The singing that was sung by the Yolngu women, it tells a journey of their pain for the land. Because in our world, Yolngu and the land are one. Yolngu began then to sing the journey of our ancestors and our loved ones that have gone before us. It's a time of moment when we feel their presence around us in this gathering that enables us Yolngu women to give us strength and courage to carry on our traditions, our culture, our stories about the land. Women don't sing in the big ceremonies. Is that right? This is the place for women to sing? That's right, mm. yeah. They can sing in the public for any ceremonies, no, but it's sort of like crying and just to feel that peace, you know, have that peace within them. Yeah. And to sing, it really makes, like us, sitting around them, quiet and just think of the times we had with the families. So it's a very private thing for women mm. to sing. Mm. It is, yeah. You put it in terms, it's meditating. Gross, general manager, and Michael Honahan, music director, run Darwin's Skinny Fish Music. A record label and publisher dedicated to Aboriginal music, the business also has a clear community development ethic based on their long relationships with Aboriginal people. They're advisors to the Galawinku Healthy Lifestyle Festival, which merges health messages with a celebration of the vibrant rock music history of Elko Island. For decades, they've observed the interconnectedness of ceremony, social and personal health. Mark Gross. Again, if you look at communities that have licensed clubs in them, people can tend to cut a ceremony short because the club's opened, whereas in areas where there is no easy access to things like grog, 
it doesn't become an issue. People are there for weeks and every time there is a music event in a community, we see that young kids stop sniffing, we see people stop drinking. Now, for us, you know, what we would love to see in terms of music is that there's a greater activity of music at the community level. And, you know, the Gallowinko Healthy Lifestyle Festival is part of that, the Barunga Festival. And, you know, we're sort of working towards or trying to encourage this grand plan of getting people to support community festivals because if there are enough community festivals, people remain focused and go, right, next week we're, there's one over here, so we're going to go there. But what is the medical evidence of the positive effects on Indigenous health of practising ceremony and living on country on the outstations? Two studies indicate what is intrinsically known by Indigenous communities would be well supported by further investigation. Dean Nibberbook from the Wadikan Land Management Program and GP Paul Burgess made a snapshot of a town and its outstations on the central Arnhem Land Plateau. Dean and I both collaborated on a project called um, Healthy Country, Healthy People, which was a project that ran between 2004 and 2007. And the objective of that program, which Dean actually initiated, was um, to investigate what the benefits are of people remaining engaged with country and caring for country. And the benefits were particularly interested in the human health benefits, but also the environmental benefits. Dean, what made you want to get a project like this going? You know, from the beginning, probably you know, back in the 50s, we know that country were very healthy. And when the country was very healthy, I mean, the people was healthy as well. Because of uh, lots of impacts in our community and our, you know, our people being impacted as well, well, I don't think the country is healthy no more. And the people, you know, their uh, health situation is a bit poor because once the countries are being healthy, you know, people out there in the environment doing their own things, like managing the country, going out walking about, collecting food from out in the wild, you know, and that's what makes people really healthy because it's a life they enjoy out in, out in, out in the bush because everything is just there. I mean, in a human-made town, in the settlements, people hasn't progressed a healthy life because of all the exotic food that we're having, and we ought to go to buy things from the shop. And a lot of the food that we eat from the shop, it has high cholesterols, you know. When hunting out in a natural environment, you know, everyone feels that they are more healthier. We have a competition between the exotic food plus natural food, you know. You know, we're trying to bring our people back in the country where their fathers and their grandfathers. And we're drawing people from town, bringing them back in the bush, give them an opportunity to explore, you know, what kind of lifestyle, what sort of health they have in their own homeland. And um, it's very, very strong tradition that and some people you know, are ready to come back, some people are not ready to come back because of all this education for our children, some medication, all that. In our country, they're still waiting for people, I suppose. And the country needs the people to go back to manage it. When the countries are healthy, I'm pretty sure the people are, will be healthy as well. Do you have ceremony? Ceremony is a part of our lifetime. It's, uh, 
I think that we have been practicing for thousands of years. Yeah, it's always been you know healthy for our people. You know, it's always been in our blood. The ceremony gives us identity and the power of our people to able to turn, participate, and gather up with the people. You know, and that's part of the healthy style, mm. getting all the tribe together and performing the ritual and practices. The study we did, that Dean initiated, we looked at caring for country broadly and one of the components of caring for country that Dean's talked about is ceremony. We spent two years talking with senior landowners in this large community and we identified several caring for country activities. They were uh, using country to gain food or medicinal resources and burning country, burning the grasses every year. So that was though all those activities involved direct interactions with landscape. Then we looked at activities that had a more spiritual component. Participation in ceremonies was one of those. The other one was protecting sacred sites or sacred areas. And the last activity that um, we identified with our work with uh, landowners was the production of artefacts, carvings, baskets, paintings, which were concrete embodiments of knowledge and of landscapes and telling the story for everybody to see and to share. We then provided checkups for people, uh, preventive health checkups, and looked at their health outcomes compared to their participation against those range of activities. And what we found was very impressive health benefits associated with caring for country. So the major causes of premature death and uh, illness in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians are diabetes, heart disease, kidney failure, obesity, Against every one of those key indicators, we found that caring for country was associated with much better health, significantly so and substantially so. In addition, we also found people had less stress. We measured psychosocial stress. So I think the, the simple health story here is that the Aboriginal community I've worked with, they volunteered their own health promotion story. And it's a, a matter of respecting that health promotion story and validating it and saying, yes, it's legitimate for the major causes of disease and mayhem in Aboriginal communities that, you know, it's a true story and it needs further support. Uh, the political climate in the last decade especially has been very much ab about closing down outstations, calling them unviable and unsustainable, but they're missing out uh, on that very crude analysis of economics, some of the, the health benefits that brings to Aboriginal people and also the ecological benefits that brings to our environment. And more and more, since that we started out with the Caring for Country program, especially where I work, the place at Gabalwanamu, we're drawing more and more family groups from the community by taking them out for a couple of weeks, co-hunting, camping, talking to the spiritual realities, you know, talking to the whole environment. And they feel relaxed. Their body becomes really, really healthier. Once they go back into the, uh, to the town, well, that's where all the problems begin, mm. you know, because of depression, sadness, uh, impacts, you know, all those sort of things happening in the community, and it's, it's just it's unbalanced sometimes. Depression and sadness have defined physical effects on people. Paul, when you say that uh, the major health indicators uh, show that there's a marked reduction in diabetes, heart disease and so on, what sort of reduction are you talking about? The major study, which has really looked at the, the question you're, you're interested in, is a study conducted in Utopia, um, which is a, a collection of outstations about two and a half hours northeast of Alice Springs. As a medical student in 1995, I was fortunate enough to participate in that study, gathering data. Uh, what that study has shown is that over uh, 15 years of follow-up, that 
that community, which is almost entirely outstations, have achieved reductions in cardiovascular deaths and admissions to hospital by around 40%. What we're seeing is a less incidence or the less heart attacks basically over time, a less admissions to hospital for cardiovascular disease over time than would be expected looking at Northern Territory or even Aboriginal health statistics across the nation. So what that study told us was where better health outcomes were occurring. Utopia is a place where people have never been taken off country, where they've always maintained their links with country. They're very strong in ceremony. They're very strong in customary foods and they're very strong in artwork. So all the things that we're looking at, they have great strength in all of those areas. So there are some real synergies between our work in, in the Healthy Country, Healthy People study and what's been observed in, at Utopia for over 20 years. And you can find out more about the Utopia study by going to the Encounter website abc.net.au rn encounter and follow the links you'll find there. Now at the Gama Festival in northeast Arnhem Land, there's a women's healing centre set up for local women and visiting cultural tourists. Based in Yakala, the healing centre is run by senior Yolnu women, including Japri Munengirich. It includes a program called Strong Women, Strong Babies, Strong Culture. <laughs> Well, the ladies up there has been doing it for a while. I call them the mothers. <laughs> and seeing the impact on you. everyone in the community of a frog and you name it. And they were concerned about it all. And they came up together talked about it and said that it's time for us to do something, step in and do what we have to do to get out. For the sake of our people. For the sake of our people as well as the children. Yeah. So it runs all the time? Happen all the time back at the community. Yeah. And one of the ones is through my um, programs. The Strong Women, Strong Baby, Strong Culture. Can you tell me about that? That's one of the five programs I have inside Women's Resource Centre is to, to keep the culture strong, to pass the knowledge to the younger generations and to continue practising the practices that need to be continued on as in healing. How is this associated with caring for country? Well, you need to take a look at the real you within you. You're happy and living on that land and knowing who you are. If that inner being is healed, it takes care of the body as well. It starts from the inside out. You're listening to Encounter on Radio National and we're exploring how ceremonial practices positively affect Indigenous health. I'm Gretchen Miller. Amongst the women that took the dawn walk that morning at Gama was Danielle Dial, who's doing a Bachelor of Indigenous Studies at Southern Cross University in Lismore, New South Wales. I asked her about being an Indigenous woman who did not grow up on country or experience ceremony during her childhood. What I was saying before about having just that mindfulness, because I think ceremony is in everything and and ritual is just a part of ceremony. It's like the doing part of the ceremony. So 
just being really mindful of what we do and and how we do it is the ceremony life is a ceremony and being aware of that then we're being aware of the well-being of life and of ourselves but then when it comes to old traditional ceremonial practices which is so very important well maybe one day I'll be shown <laughs> some of them but at the moment I haven't been shown any so I just make them up myself <laughs> and the way I do that is is by just you know connecting with myself just meditating and breathing slowly and and speaking to the divine or speaking to the great spirit that's within everything and and just listening to what I'm told to do you know with my body or with my words or to me like ceremony has to evolve to to accommodate the new issues that is going on just like the knowledge needs to change to accommodate and so I think that it's okay to change and evolve just as long as there's that still that same spirit there and I wonder how something like that could come about because you know you talk about ceremony that you have developed for yourself personally mm. but the rituals and ceremonies that we've seen here are, are for the group you know I'm just young I'm 28 and I you know haven't lived in culture so I can't I can only speak for what I know but I think um, just you know talking with the elders you know talking getting and it's happening you know it happens and you know the women going to special places like we've got these amazing tea tree lakes you know just talking and discussing you know what can be done and how can it be done and and creating you know a ceremony around that and being able to the special cleansing thing. I don't. I don't know enough, but you know, um, these That's are just suggestions. Yeah. yeah, that I'm sure can happen. Remember that there's over over half a million Indigenous people in Australia. Only about 30% of those people live in remote areas. The rest live in regional or urban areas. So we, whatever response we have has to look at the full Aboriginal population. How can that be addressed in practical terms mm. to bring mm. back practices that yeah. are cultural and, in, and in encourage self-worth? Yeah, well, well there, there are a number of different ways. One of the big responses, and, and you recall that the Prime Minister made the apology on the 13th of February this year to Aboriginal people who who were part of the stolen generation, people who were forcibly removed from their their uh, community, from their culture, from their language, and placed somewhere else. One of the responses to that, and the government's put some money in and there's still pledges for a lot more to go into, firstly, link-up programs, helping people re-establish links with their family, or where they came from, or, or to try and track down where they came from. Then once I've tracked that down, looking at reunion programs to help support the family and their kin to go back and re-establish with, with their family in their home location. So that, that's an important aspect to it. So that's it's, a kind of returning to country. Returning to country, returning to culture, understanding. But, you know, it's not always that easy because there's been maybe um, 30, 40 years. There's people now who are in their 50s, 60s who still don't know where they came from because the records have been lost. They've been placed outside of it. It's very sad. 
sad. And, and that has had a fairly significant mental health impact. And, you know, so there needs to be more support there. There is support coming in. There's a discussion going on to establish healing centres uh, because, you know, that, that's going to be important for people to work on, on their healing. But once we get established, and, and we see this in a lot of urban areas, we see a lot of you know, cultural revival programs, dance programs that people are, are going through. Tom Kalmer. The Gama Festival was notable for the number of teenage and young boys dancing ceremonially, kicking up the sand of the bungal ground each afternoon. By participating, young people are intensively trained and in learning the movements and songs, they keep the tradition alive. But since the 1960s, there's also been a successful rock music tradition in the area, with bands like Soft Sands, Yothu Yindi, Saltwater and Jeffrey Gurawulyana Pingu all coming from this area. Most band members are also traditional dancers and singers. Mandawoy Yinapingu is from the Gumach clan. He's Yothu Yindi's lead singer, and it's the Yothu Yindi Foundation that started the Gama Festival of Traditional Music ten years ago. The balance between the contemporary and the traditional relates back to a musical tradition of balance between the didgeridoo, or yidaki, and the singing and the dancing. We're keeping in mind that we don't want to become like the Americans, you know, mm. with, with the hip-hop way. Well, I'm not judging it in a bad way. Okay. It's just uh, one way of making sure that uh, society functions, you know, without doing damage to traditional ways of thinking. And, you know, quite easy to run away from traditional ways and then one day making it bastardized, you know. How do you manage the balance? The balance has been always original. So the original balance is what the ancestor of this place gave the power to play the edaki and how to balance the, and the singing, expressing this land. Some communities want to keep the two traditions very separate and others like to integrate them, as with Salt Water Band and Nabalek, says Michael Honahan, music director of Skinny Fish Music. They take traditional songs and know the melodies and stories of those traditional songs and then they might totally change that traditional song, but you can feel that full integration. The same with Nabalek Band. And the old men have endorsed that and they actually tell the Nablet guys stories to bring out in contemporary music. A lot of the elders here in Arnhem Land now grew up with rock and roll. So I think they would see a lot of it as a legitimate form of expression. I think one of the big impacts of the Nablet style of music on young people is to reinforce that traditional culture has a positive impact outside of their own world. Because... One of the great thrills, I think, that people from each of those language groups, like the, the Nablek uh, family members, when they see them perform in front of non-Indigenous Australians and, and people love it and love the songs, it's a reinforcement to them that their cultural values are worth something. And because they, don't, they very rarely get that. Their, their whole lives, they're told in subtle ways that what you've got is not good enough that the Western way is the right way. 
Without functional outstations, caring for country and practising ceremony is extremely difficult. Last year, the former coalition government handed over responsibility for Indigenous housing to the states. But made explicit in the accompanying Memorandum of Understanding was that no federal funding was to be spent on outstation housing. The new Labor government hasn't changed this policy, although it says it will financially support caring for country initiatives. However, the Senate Select Committee on Regional and Remote Indigenous Communities made its first report last month. It has a wide-ranging brief to investigate the effectiveness of government policies in the wake of the NT intervention and, more generally, on the well-being of regional Aboriginal communities. And so far, it's found critical housing shortages to be the number one issue, impacting negatively on physical and mental health, school attendance, employment capability, substance abuse, violence and child abuse and neglect. Meanwhile, the imminent introduction of carbon trading offers an economic argument for the active support of outstation living, says GP Paul Burgess. What our study has shown is their outstations do have this intrinsic value and what we will see in the coming years is a very big opportunity. We will see a transformation in our economy where we're going to be looking at uh, environmental offsets for carbon and people in outstations are very well placed through their activities burning on country and keeping country healthy to trade that carbon and to establish sustainable economies in remote areas of Australia. This is a, a marvellous opportunity uh, for economic development and independence and self-determination and keeping culture strong. The skills are there. Uh, health outcomes would be one of the biggest benefits here. If I had a dollar in my hand, you know, as Paul said, indicated it's up to each individual to set up what they need, or what their priorities are. You know, I. I make a sort of plan or every six months during the um, school semester and I have a bucket of dollars there so I would take a people out in the bush, you know, walk about, mm. seeing the country, to feel the countries, you know, body talking to the country and the people itself. You know. So that would be as useful as a dialysis machine, for example? Would be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because walking out in the country, you know, all people especially, you know, they, they'd feel proud, they'll move 10 yards, they'll stop and they'll see something very important, they'll start talking to it, you know, telling their kids, this tree here, it was here when I was a child. It's not just food, is it? It's more than that. It's it's what roots you to... Yes, routinality and, you know, all that is all being connected through the healthy country, healthy process programs. Mm especially with the healthy country, healthy people, you know, lifestyle. You know, people tend to get stuck sometimes, they get really sad, you know, they've got nowhere to move around. This has been Encounter on ABC Radio National and at abc.net.au slash rn slash encounter you can find links to various articles, the Senate inquiry and music sites. You can also listen to extended interviews, view guest and musician details and a photo gallery of the 2008 Gama Festival. Thanks to all our guests, to the many performers you heard in the program and to the Yothu Yindi Foundation. Very special thanks to Sally Treloyne and Alan Marrett.
The sound engineer today was Michelle Goldsworthy. I'm Gretchen Miller. See you next time. In the water, and you feel the water sends out energy. That is part of the earth, the land, and the earth is talking to you, but you're still part of the earth itself. The ceremony is an expression of knowing that form of understanding. It's the centre of spirituality, really, basically. Ceremony is part of spirituality. If you don't have a ceremony, you don't have a spirituality base, you know? The creation is, and your spirituality starts, and then end product starts. It's the end product that triggers up the spirituality and the, the magic to be able to know what is around you.